0: Sometimes I'll just put my headphones on, particularly when I'm working and I'm not actually listening to anything, but my headphones are on and it, it like, the, yeah. you know, they're relatively substantial headphones. They, yeah. they keep the world out. Yeah. And so it, it puts me in this little, this little quieter bubble. Uh, um, and you know, it, like the house could be totally empty. Uh, there's no other sound in the house. And yet I put on yeah. my headphones and it's like, yeah. I feel like yeah. I'm in the mode. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. We introduce you to the people and passions of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at VIU and share stories about events and projects happening on campus. My name's Theo Finnegan, and I'm talking to Professor Robin Davies from VIU's Media Studies department. Friday, March 11th from 10 to 11.30, Robin, along with students from Media Studies, will give a presentation titled, Beyond Voices, Audio Media and the Sound of Scholarship. Robin studied double bass and music technology at McGill's Schulich School of Music. His interests include the utilization of the human voice in auditory storytelling, sound design for visual art, the construction and use of software-based musical instruments for live electronic music performance. And helping others embrace technology for use in their creative endeavors. Robin's sound design and remix work can be heard on releases from Phoenicia Publishing, Six Records, Maple Music, Ad Noisium, and Sun Chaser Pictures. I go to sleep every night listening to an audiobook, either one that I've bought or, or on Spotify. And I find that I find it very hard now. To go to sleep with, with without someone talking in my ear, and it's interesting because it, like it's not that I'm not interested in the thing I'm listening to, but it's just so it takes me a long time to get through a book because it's five minutes at a time and then I'm asleep. So it's really good at going, making me fall asleep, even though I'm interested in it. Right now I'm listening to to the uh, Mirror and the Light, which is like the third book of the Henry uh, Thomas Cromwell historical novel trilogy, and it's like forty hours. I just can't get through this long chapter, because I, I listen so briefly every night. I also just started listening to Ulysses dramatized by the Irish Public Radio in
0: 1982. And it's just the whole book
1: read out by different actors and narrators and so on. And uh, no, it doesn't seem as hard or something.
0: I think okay. some things are definitely made easier by, uh, by listening to them. There's a lot of novels and a lot of reading that I can't do in the car. I can't do as an audiobook. Like for a number of reasons. One is that sometimes when you're driving yeah. you miss um, bits and yeah. pieces of the story because you're focusing on something else. Um, but yeah. also because often when I when I read something and it's something really good, sometimes I wanna stop and go back and check out that paragraph again and focus on it and, and appreciate the prose and appreciate some of the some of the, the density of the information that's coming through. Yeah. And so novels like that, I, they're wasted in the car because I, I can't yeah. um, I can't sink into the writing in the way that I that I can when I've got those words in front of me on the page. So definitely mm-hmm. I, I I privilege certain kinds of material as actual. You know, like real physical books uh, that I can enjoy in that way. But I agree with you that sometimes the really long things, you know, where you don't need every single word to count. Sometimes those things, you can just, you know, over a week or two, you can just rattle through those in your commute. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, I read Ulysses. I read Ulysses.
1: (laughs) But I feel like it's, I mean, I've read it and studied it when I was 20 whatever. But there's so much of it that goes over your head. It's partly why I think I'm enjoying listening to it because I'm like, I don't care right now. Like, even if I was reading it, I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. what. Like, you'd almost have to be skimming it anyway, right? Unless you wanted to study it. So I feel like listening to it is kind of a good middle ground or something where, I mean, you also, I think the other thing is too, you find different things when you listen, right? Like, I mean, the physiology is different, right? You're Probably the brain's being used in a different way. So it's not the same book in a sense. There's a moon over Bourbon Street tonight. As they pass
0: beneath the pale I've no
1: choice but to So I was watching an interview on YouTube with a guy called Rick Beato, who's like a producer, I think, or a musician. He's got he's a big YouTube guy now, and he does he breaks down songs and kind of talks about theory, but also does interviews. And he was talking to um, Sting. He was talking about how. You know, his relationship to sound and to songwriting. And he he was talking about how people have different metaphors that they prefer for, for how how they relate to songs and sound and music. For instance, you know, some people think of color. Sting was saying he thinks of structure all the time. Like if he's writing a song or thinking about music, it's always structural. And I was wondering if you if as a musician yourself and as someone who thinks about sound, is there a metaphor that you would use to, to say, well, this is how I think of sound or this is how I think of, of of music?
0: When I think of creating music, I think most often of taking the listener on uh, a journey through, through spaces. And I, I'm always trying to figure out what the what the vector is for the listener, right? So they start in one place and they appreciate that space and then they travel and often when you travel, you're able to see the city you're departing and you're also able to see the mountains towards which you are driving. Uh, And being able to appreciate that transition um, is really exciting. And for sure, sometimes you walk through a door uh, you know, or you step off a cliff and and that transition is faster. Um, but to me, those exploring those spaces and being able to move from one space to another is is the most important thing. When I make music, I, I don't think of writing songs. Uh, and I, you know somebody like sting is an is an excellent songwriter, and there are many of them. Uh, but then we get people who are very good at producing. Uh, an environment that we can hang out in for a while um, and years ago um, I had a, a teacher named Mitchell Morris who was uh, really interested in Motown and disco and funk and soul uh, and I remember him talking about you know how James Brown puts together a track and James Brown will will set up a groove and he'll rant over top for a bit and then he'll say okay drummer like it's time to go to the next place Uh, And so there'll be, you know, some hits from the drummer that are maybe pre-arranged and then boom, everybody's, you know, on a new chord uh, with a slightly different, you know, guitar riff happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So in terms of structure, I I think much more about a journey and much less about trying to create a, um, a memorable form, you know, as you might with pop music. But that's two totally different purposes for... Uh, for the music some people like a pop song and some people like something that they can just put on in the background and it's gonna be oral wallpaper for some period of time uh, and it helps it helps them in in building an environment which is going to be a nice place to uh, to do something else at the same time
1: I'm sort of a late convert to listening to jazz which I will never really liked growing up and my dad was a big into jazz and so I've been listening to jazz a lot and I feel like I was listening to Bitches Brew the other day um, which I have a vinyl copy of actually and and I feel like that's something which applies to to music like like that of sort of later Miles Davis where it's it's not a song at all because it's you know some of those tracks are really long and they don't they don't feel particularly kind of um, structured obviously there's a lot of improvisation but they're not random either you know what I mean? Like it's like there's an architecture, but they're going somewhere. So I really like that idea of a journey as a, as as a metaphor for for music. It's not it's not a box, right? Like you, it's mobile and it's fluid in, in a sense.
0: And then another way to think about it too is that some people are composers, some people are songwriters, some people are producers, some people are improvisers, mm. and all of those carry with them. Uh, Certain kinds of comfortable spaces for music making, um, mm. and I, I don't think that Miles Davis was a songwriter. I think that Miles oh. Davis did a nice job with some jazz standards, maybe that other people had written, uh, and in some cases created those uh, himself. But I, but I think he was more a master of of sound yeah. and environment and and vibe and groove and all of those other things.
1: Your training. You know you learned the double
0: bass, right? Was the
1: bass your first instrument? or what did you, how did you sort
0: of get into music? I was really fortunate. My elementary school um, had a string program. So in grade seven and eight, I was able to start playing uh, the string bass, the upright bass, uh, the double bass. And um, so I stuck with that, and I did that all through high school. And I, I was also fortunate that my high school had uh, a string program and uh, and a band program. So there were there were a lot of instruments. And this is also at a time when schools owned um, all of these instruments. So you know, my my daughter's at, at doing music in middle school right now, and we rent an instrument, the school doesn't have instruments, so all the kids rent an instrument or they have to own their own instrument. Um, but I didn't have to do that. And you know, a, a double bass can cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, you know, even an entry model is gonna be prohibitive for most, for most people, especially when you're a kid and you're just kind of trying it out. Um, so I played in all the groups in high school um, and, uh, and, and really enjoyed that. And I was, I was fortunate to have great, great music teachers to be able to do that. Um, and so then, it, it seemed to me natural that I might do musical things at university, um, and I did. But the <laughs> the challenging part of getting to university was that um, I had never taken a private lesson before I went to university. And so I got to university, and I remember being in a in a room with all these other bass players getting ready for an audition. And I realized, holy smokes, I'm really not actually that good. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of, you know, a, a concert professional double bass player as compared with all of these other people. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think I got into uh, music school playing the double the bass, bass and, and having a, a general solid background in music. Um, but then when I was there, what i actually wanted to explore was music technology Mm -hmm. um and other ways of making sound and other ways of using technology as a as a mediating force for for music um and so using technology to do creative things um it was a natural extension of that, like let's, let's make art, generally, with technology. Let's do, let's do images with technology. Let's, let's process all kinds of information with technology. Um, and then I got really excited about helping other people do that as well. So yeah, my path into music is, is yes from the double bass and sort of generally from a lot of other kind of musical experiences, I sang in a lot of choirs. Um, But then the the technology aspect of it is certainly where I came out and and why I wind up teaching in a media studies department um, and helping people with video production and web production and uh, generally thinking about their relationship with technology and how they might be creative with those tools.
1: So where did the technology, And I mean, was, was it just because it was in the, in the water at the time or, you know, sort of new developments, like where, was it what you were listening to, like, was it just something you were interested in, like, is there a sort of genesis for that, that kind of, that um, uh, adoption maybe of a more technological approach?
0: In my, uh, in my music culture and technology class, uh, one of the challenges that I give the students is to try and define and explain their musical taste. Mm. and in hindsight looking at the kind of music that I gravitated towards like in the 80s um, I liked music that had uh, an electronic component and the 80s was a good time for that because there was (laughs) lots of new technology that was helping make that happen so um, you know I liked a lot of the sounds that were coming out of uh, out of England um, you know like synth pop and those kinds of things and um And that's the kind of music that I also wanted to be able to make. So, it, so also in high school, you know, my parents got me a computer and they got me a synthesizer. And then I was able to, to mess around with those sounds and, and have a really good understanding of, um, of how to make music, but also how to, how to make sound. And the, the sounds that I would choose to do music making were not, they were not acoustic sounds. They were not the kind of sounds you could get from real instruments. They were the kind of sounds that you could only get from experimenting with some other kind of technology so that the technology is a requirement in the music making if you want to make orchestral music that's great get an orchestra um Mm. if you want to make music that that doesn't sound like anything that can be produced in the physical world then often you need to jump in with other tools
1: is there a way that you could you would characterize the relationship then between tradition and innovation and say your work or maybe more generally because is it that things can coexist together, that they kind of feed off each other, or they're just kind of different different boxes people are in? Um, you know, things seem to be changing a lot now too, there's a lot, lot more technology now. Um, do you have a thought on like the,
0: the broader relationship between tradition
1: and innovation?
0: Again, coming back to that idea of musical taste, I realize mm-hmm. that, that one of the things that I gravitate towards is places where... Um, where the tradition and the innovation are happening at the same time. And I'm particularly thinking about, um, uh, you know, someone, someone writes a song and then someone else covers that song. No. So you've got a cover version of that song. And, and I'm fascinated by cover versions of the song where the, the new version, the more recent version, is unrecognizable um, in yeah. so many ways from mm. the source version. And I'm thinking of you know jazz trios that are that are doing cover versions of you know techno music um or you know people that are doing acoustic versions uh you know really scaled down acoustic versions of Nine Inch Nails um and so then you get you get the music as the linking feature in in all of what you're hearing Um, but the the people who are making the music who are influenced by their own culture and the technology that surrounds them and their own taste have very different ideas about the way that music could be turned into something that other people want to consume. Hi there. This is Ben Henriquez from the music department at Vancouver Island University and you are listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities on CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo.
1: reading an article about Thomas Tallis I think his name was. He was a musician in Henry VIII's time, so 1530s around that time the middle of the 16th century his really interesting problem was he was writing church music, like religious music, right at the time that the, the, the shift is happening from Catholicism to Protestantism and so the, the monasteries are being dissolved and there's, so he has to kind of think about how am I going to be a professional, or not a professional, but, you know, a working musician when the people are paying me to, to work or providing me with my livelihood, that, like that whole structure is being taken away. And also ideologically, you know, he's being asked to write quite different kinds of music for, for the sort of new regime. But I, there was a piece in the article about him which talked about how he basically ran, would, you know, quite brilliantly run, run together those two styles continually throughout his career so that he was always calling back to... Earlier, sort of supposedly outmoded or even or even sort of banned styles in his newer music, which I just I f- found a really fascinating notion, right? Like that that you that there would be this kind of cohabitation of um, different different ways of making music, different styles
0: of music um, in, in one guy, in one one musician. Absolutely, and you know, Talis and so many other church musicians, you know, they had to keep. I'd like to say they had to keep God happy, but ultimately they needed to keep their patrons happy. Right. Uh, and uh, church musicians had such a good gig because, um, you know, somebody like Bach had to make new music like every single week, um, new versions of things for every single week. Um, and church music is a really fascinating uh, topic because from that point of view of innovation, because um, selling selling faith to people um, is is always going to require you to to change your presentation of the material. Uh, and so if you look at church music from Thomas Tallis's time, and you look at church music from, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and I'm thinking, you know, as you mentioned, Protestantism, I'm thinking Church of England and the long history of, of church music there. And then you look at a lot of more modern church music, um, there's very different uh, reasons why that music is there, um, mm. and in certain cases the music was there because it helped the congregation to remember the content and feel like they could participate. And sometimes the music is there because it's it's intended to make the the whole religious experience seem incredibly ornate and over the top. Um, and I'm thinking of you know Mozart and a lot of a lot of his church music, and then more modern church music is. Uh, is much more influenced by, by pop music and by, you know, more uh, secular culture. And so there's guitars and there's drums and people walk in and they sing along and, and Christian rock is, uh, is, is all about motivating people to dance and sing and be part of the music making experience. Um, as opposed to sitting back and quietly hearing the word, uh, being, being brought to you by the professional musicians.
1: Could you talk a little bit about sound as pedagogy? It's not just the thing you're talking about or helping students understand, but but how is the sound of my teaching, or sort of form versus content, I suppose.
0: I think that those those two things are are related in a lot of ways. Um, one of the one of the ideas that I'm going to bring forward in my presentation is. Uh, how much we are affected as listeners by the sounds that we hear um, and our past experience that, um, that has included those sounds. Um, you know, so if we take the sound of, of a campfire, for example, and, and we, we, we bring that into the classroom and we say, okay, this is going to be the background sound of our conversation, mm-hmm. then what does that do to the listeners? And I've, I've played the sound of a crackling campfire for a class before, And you get a lot of responses about what that sound means to people. So a lot of people, when they think of a campfire experience, they will imagine that they're, that they're camping for pleasure and they're sitting around and they're, you know, having a drink and roasting a marshmallow. And they're in one of the more relaxed places that they might be. And so if that is the environment that, uh, that your classroom is, um, then you've got a really interesting um, mm. openness in terms of the kinds of conversations people want to have and, and the way that they want to understand those. Mm. Some people will listen to that Crackling Campfire and think, you know what? Um, I associate that with, with community building and with, uh, and with ritual and with tradition. Um, and so I think about Campfire as a, as a formal situation. Um, and some people will think about a campfire and think, you know what? Like a fire is is a tool for cooking, uh, and so when I hear that fire, um, mm-hmm. I I think about the smells and I think about the I think about the fact that I'm going to share a meal with people, uh, and some people will then will hear a fire and they'll think, you know what? Like I was affected by forest fires all of last year, so the smell of fire and the sound of fire for me is about displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point of view, sounds can be incredibly powerful, but also very complicated because it brings with it all the rest of that meaning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's that's p- a pure sound situation. Uh, music will do the same kind of thing. Um, but the other thing that's true is that our our voices uh, and the, the qualities of our voices and the quality of our presentation uh, and our accents um, are also understood as, as part of who we are and part of what we are saying and part of how we're saying it and what we mean. Um, mm-hmm. So all of those components are all situations where we're hearing something and it's affecting the way that we learn or helping us understand what it is we're learning. So setting that environment for uh, for learning is is a big part of um, what I do in a lot of classes by you know by including music, by including, recordings of people uh, speaking um, by including other you know natural sounds Um, and when I'm teaching sound then that becomes absolutely a focus but even when I'm not teaching sound specifically I like to be able to include that sense in a way that people do their work and in some ways these days it's hip because podcasts are such a such a thing um, and people are down with with consuming information in that way, Um, but it's always been the case that sound can be and music can be a vehicle for information and help make the information sink in better.
1: You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Robin Davies for joining me in conversation, as well as for technical production. Music by Greg Bush. The Colloquium Series will be back in fall 2022 with more illuminating presentations by VIU Arts and Humanities faculty. For more information, go to ah ah.viu.ca and click on Colloquium Series. My name's Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening.